Welcome to the Real Estate Guys radio program. I'm your host, Robert Helms. In the world of possibilities, how do you find a deal that makes sense? And if you want to put your money into a deal, how can you be sure that the team and the operator and the promoter make sense? That's what we're going to talk about today on the Real Estate Guys radio show. If you love real estate and have always wanted to own your own business, listen up. The Real Estate Guys and their panel of experts want to teach you how to go full-time fast in the real estate syndication business. These next few years may go down in history as one of the best times ever to acquire investment real estate. There are deals everywhere if you know where to look and how to assemble the resources. The Secrets of Successful Syndication Seminar will show you how to make big money doing big deals from a team of experts that have syndicated projects totaling more than $1 billion. Don't wait for someone to give you a raise or create a job for you. Attend the secrets of successful syndication and learn how to build a team, raise capital, find deals, and make full-time money in six months or less. Go to realestateguysradio.com and click on events. All the big players use syndication as a way to diversify risk, optimize profits, and earn big money. You can too. Go to realestateguysradio.com and click on events. Welcome to the Real Estate Guys radio program. I'm your host, Robert Helms. Let's meet our co-host, financial strategist, Russell Gray. Hey, Robert. It is such a big world of possibility. So many deals out there, so many things to do. And yet, time after time, we hear folks from Ask the Guys to live seminars to random people on the street that got into real estate and it all went sideways and it went wrong and they made a mistake and they lost money. And not every time. But a lot of the times, they could have headed that off the pass if they had been really smart about what they were looking for and vetting the deal. Absolutely. You know, it's, I'm going to give you a very strange example, a life lesson I had. When uh, I was in high school, my mom got into the catering business. And so I was in the purchasing department. My job was to go to the grocery store. Ah. And so we had a, a little Japanese farm guy that you know ran a produce market, and, and he taught me how to shop for produce. Now, when I used to go shop for oranges, I would always pick the lightest orange because I wanted to get as many oranges as I could into the bag because they charged by the pound. I bet you had a spreadsheet for that. What I didn't realize and what he taught me is that when you pick an orange that's heavy for its size, it's full of juice ah. and it's a much better orange. And so because I thought I was being smart, gaming the system, getting more oranges for my money, what I ended up with was a basket full of bad oranges. And when he taught me how to do it properly, I ended up getting more value. Yes, I paid more per orange, but I actually got a good orange and I threw away less fruit. Orange, you glad you met that guy? It's crazy, That right? makes so much sense. So well, the key, the whole lesson for a real estate investor is, is if you get into the real estate investing business, whether you're investing in your own account and buying individual properties, or whether you make a lot of money in your day job and you've got a bunch of money and you're looking to invest through other people, or if you're a syndicator, somebody who is taking your time and talent relationships and offering those to people who make a lot of money and need to put their money to work, Everybody in that food chain has to understand what they're looking at and how to pick either a good partner or how to pick a good deal. Now, if you're on the partner side, you don't have to necessarily be that great on picking the deal. You have to know that you picked a partner who knows how to pick the deal. 
But if you're on the deal side, then you need to know how to pick the deal. In all cases, you have to have enough information so you could talk to somebody and say, hey, tell me a little bit about how you do this so that I can understand if you just are throwing darts at a wall or just buying something that happens to be available, or do you really have some disciplined process by which you decide, is this a good deal or not? Well, and of course, it depends on product type and market and so forth. Multifamily investors might be different from retail, might be different from agricultural. But in every case, real estate investing is part art and part science. The science part of it is the checklists and, and the process and those things. And there's a lot of that involved, certainly on the financial side, tenant vetting, all that. But there's also the art part, learning to be able to read the signs of where a market is, where it is in the cycle, what's going on, and the big compared to what. Of all the things I could invest in, why do I invest in a particular product or market or team? And a lot of that has to do with where you are. We always talk about personal investment philosophy, but some folks listening to the show, we get this all the time on Ask the Guy questions. I don't have enough money. I'm barely getting started. I, I only have $10,000. What can I do? All the way up to, I am so busy making a living that I don't have the time to put it in. I just want to find a place to put my money. Those are two very different problems but they're both problems that can be solved with real estate. Yeah, absolutely. And it comes down to you having a clear idea what you're trying to accomplish and then finding the right people. It starts with people, it starts with relationships. We say all the time, this is a relationship business. And because here's the, here's the deal, if you don't know yourself, and you don't know who you're doing business with, and you don't know what you're asking them to do for you, they might do a great job at what they do. It's just not right for you. So when you have a checklist and you go down the checklist and everything checks off, like I checked off, check, this is a light orange, check, I got a lot of them, check, I got, you know, my price per orange was very low, but at the end of the day, I ended up with a bad product because it didn't do what I needed it to do. I was buying the oranges for flavor, for juice, you know, and so it, it goes back, it's, it's the same thing in anything that you do. You have to know what you're doing, and the best way we found to learn to know what you're doing is to go find people that have figured out how to do it at a high level and ask them because they'll tell you. And when they tell you, you learn a lot without you having to pay the price they paid to get the lesson. In fact, our guest today has a fascinating background in real estate and has really learned through experience the things to look for, the things to ask, and how to go get those check boxes checked. We come back, you'll have a chance to uh, learn more about finding and funding deals that make sense today on the Real Estate Guys radio program. Live nationwide, you're listening to The Real Estate Guys. Find out more at realestateguysradio.com. All aboard, it's last call for The Real Estate Guys 15th Annual Investors Summit at Sea. We're nearly sold out, just a few cabins remaining for you to spend a week with like-minded investors, world-class educators, and real-world professionals. Returning this year are sales legend Tom Hopkins, international developer Beth Clifford, attorney Mauricio Raul, commercial mortgage broker and syndicator Michael Becker, and the author of The Creature from Jekyll Island, G. Edward Griffin. Also returning are Peter Schiff and Robert Kiyosaki. It all begins April 1st, 2017 in Houston, Texas, so hurry. Visit realestateguysradio.com and click on the tab that says Summit to learn more and reserve your spot. This transformational week is like no conference you've ever attended. Go to realestateguysradio.com and click Summit and make plans to spend a week with the Real Estate Guys, Robert Kiyosaki, and an all-star faculty on the 15th Annual Investors Summit at Sea. 
Hi, this is Chris Martinson, author of Prosper, and you are listening to The Real Estate Guys. And welcome back to The Real Estate Guys radio program. Heard every weekend on this great radio station all the time at realestateguysradio.com. We're talking about finding and funding deals that make sense, and our guest is a guy that's found a lot of deals that make sense and probably been through some that haven't. So please welcome to The Real Estate Guys radio show, John Bogdasarian. How are you, sir? I'm great. Thanks for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. Well, absolutely. You have a fascinating background and uh, lots of different areas with real estate, but to tell us how you were first attracted to real estate investing. After graduating from college from the University of Arizona with a degree in Spanish, I found uh, there weren't a whole lot of jobs available in Ann Arbor, Michigan for a Spanish major. Ah. I quickly got a job with a local area developer, um, a guy by the name of Don Chisholm, who was building a golf course community, and I really enjoyed the sales process. I enjoyed learning about what he was doing development-wise. And from there, it just took off. It was one thing after another. The, the reality is I'd never been able to hold down a job before. I was fired from almost every job I ever had. Um, they didn't really know what ADD was when I was a kid growing up. So struggling through with a C average or less and being told that I wouldn't probably amount to much and I was lazy and I wasn't applying myself, um, I, I really took that as fuel to say, there's another way to do this. I can get out there, I can do things. And I needed a position where it was a carrot and stick situation. So real estate and getting my residential real estate salesperson license and then my broker license and then my CCIM, working on a commission-based structure was right for me. Well, that's awesome because so many folks who are into real estate become so because they're entrepreneurial-based. They want to go do something and make it happen. Nothing more entrepreneurial than a 100% commission-based salesperson. If you don't work, you don't eat, right? At the same time, there's lots of folks who listen to our show who have a job, they're making a lot of money, and they're off looking for better investments. One of the things that strikes me as interesting about your start is that you didn't start with a chunk of money. In fact, you had to figure out how to make things happen without any money. Yeah, my first few deals were basically zero down deals. I had five grand saved up when I bought my first condo. It was a $50,000 condominium, and I put 10% down, got a loan for the other 90 Sold it a year later for 65000 and because I was an agent, I didn't have to pay anybody. So I turned my five grand into about well, almost twenty grand, and I thought I was a genius. I mean, I thought I had it all figured out. Yeah, and ab absolutely, and then that led you to uh, more deals and bigger deals. And let's talk about that part of it, because a lot of folks who start off with a single-family residence or a condominium or something, they don't see themselves doing big deals, and we'll talk before we're done, obviously, about the kind of stuff you guys are doing today. But you've got to get that vision of making the next step and doing something bigger and building on your experience so far. Speak to that part of it. You know, I always thought practice on myself first. So I went through a long period of accumulating single family homes. And again, all my equity kept being tied up in, in the home. So every time I bought them, I had to find new ways to buy them. So I got into buying things zero down. Um, it was a very good market. It was appreciating rather rapidly. So I was, I was somewhat fortunate there that after just a few years, there was an equity buildup in the houses. I don't advocate zero down buying today. Right. Um, I think it takes a lot of luck to be able to get away with that. And I was, I was lucky in that arena. However, you don't need to have any money to make a lot of money in real estate. And that's something that it took me a little while to learn. I didn't really start taking on investors until about 2005. But once you start taking on investors, and if your passion is to make them a good return, then 
there's an endless supply. Money's not the issue anymore. It's about finding the deals that make sense, properly vetting the deals, and making sure that you're passionate about making people money and not just yourself. You know, we talked a little about this at the beginning of the show, the idea that some folks do get to the point where they've run out of their own capital and their own ability to get financing, and they find the next logical step is syndication, putting together deals with other people's money, which is exactly what you do today. At the same time, the skill set to be able to do that takes going going through the ringer a few times. All the experience that you gleaned going through it in your own account has made you a better investor. Yeah, it has. I think you can either build your own track record or you can align yourself with someone who has a track record and you can piggyback their track record. That's what we try and do for people today. We find developers with good solid projects that maybe don't have a track record. We were doing this when we were buying existing properties over the last eight years as well. We were finding people with good properties and they just didn't have the ability to refinance them when the loan came due, delever them if they needed it. And so we just find situations where we can create value for people, either a developer with a good project, and then on the other side of that, a situation where we can create value for an investor. I mean, if someone's going to participate in one of our deals, they want to know they're not getting diluted so badly that they have no chance of making a return. So we have to build a better mousetrap to make sure that they get a better return. Well, and you deal in lots of different real estate asset classes, if you will, right? You're in residential, you're in industrial, you're in commercial. So talk about how you pick a specialty when yours isn't exactly demographic or product type driven. Yeah, so we, I like to say we're not asset driven and, and we're not geographically driven. We're really situationally driven. And what I mean by that is we look for situations where we can come in and create some value and quantify all the potential risks of the deal accurately or what we believe is sufficiently accurate to take the risk and to put the time and energy in to make that deal happen. An example of that would be a building we bought just a little less than two years ago, 137,000 square foot industrial building in Livonia, Michigan. And it was occupied by Toyota and they only had a year and a half left on the lease. And we knew they were leaving because they're building a, a huge mega new headquarters facility right down the road. And so we knew they were going to vacate the building. But we also knew that market really well. And we knew that their lease rate was a solid $1.50 to $2 a foot under market. So we could come in and buy that building for, I think it was a 13 or 14 cap rate because of the short term remaining on the lease. Yep and realize that when the tenant's gone, we actually are gonna improve it to about an 18 to 20 cap rate. So today, that building is easily worth, uh, we just put the new tenant in, it was not vacant for a single month, and, I, and then we took the value of that building conservatively to about nine million, and we paid about four and a half million for it with about 2.1 or 2.2 million worth of leverage on it. So we took about a, a $2.5 million equity and turned it into around $7 million in two years' period of time. Well, that sounds pretty good. That's, but... not, an example. <laughs> That's not an example I, I should probably share with everybody. That doesn't happen on every deal. But, but the reality is it's a situation where we really understood something about the market that other people didn't understand. Well, and this is the key. This is exactly what we're talking about today. How do you find a deal that makes sense? Most people would look at that and say, whoa, 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 wait a minute. The anchor tenant, the only occupant is leaving. That's a negative. So much so that was priced into the deal that way. But if you guys look at it and go, wait a minute, no, no, we have a year and a half of cash flow 
in order to have the property occupied to find the next tenant, the market's in the right place. That's what you have to look beyond. It's not, we talk about this a lot in residential um, income property. It's never about the tenant that's in your building today. It's about the line of tenants waiting behind that one. Is there enough demand in the market for the product type beyond the current tenant? Yeah, and you can quantify that pretty accurately today. Everything's available on the internet. You can find out how many permits are pulled by asset type, how many new products are coming online, what the net move in or move out of a specific area is in a neighborhood, even, you know, but you take a city and you see that they have 40,000 people moving in every year and you look at the number of permits pulled for housing residential and you see there's less than 10,000 and while everyone thinks that market is getting overbuilt, you see an opportunity to build as much as you want into that market for right now. You just have to keep an eye on it. Yeah. You know, a few weeks ago, we had Ken McElroy on the show, and he does a lot in B and mostly B-class apartments, but he does some development as well. And, you know, one of the things people were surprised to hear Ken say is we're not a buyer right now, right? The market is not where it needs to be for us to buy more. He and his partner, Ross, were buying a ton. They spent nearly $400 million in the three years where everyone else was running for the exits, which, of course, makes them look like geniuses in, in hindsight. But because you guys are situationally based, you don't get locked into a product type just because it's the darling of the of the day. Yeah, I listened to Ken's show. I thought it was excellent. I agree with him 100%. We we did the same thing from 2000 January 2009 all the way through the end of last year. We've been buyers of existing product with cash flow behind it. And we've really switched over the last year and a half we started funding development deals because the cycle was changing. And the reality is finding existing product, I, I agree, I think people are paying too much. We don't buy at seven cap rates. We just think there's way too much risk in paying that much for something. Right. You really are gambling on rents going up. And, and then we also look very carefully at the price per square foot we're paying for a building. So if we're buying an industrial building for $40 a square foot, well, we're pretty well protected because it costs you 90 to to $100 to build it. Yeah. So where can that tenant really go? And so there is some pricing pressure there that, we're, that, that protects us. However, in apartments, you got to be concerned about when the new home developers come out there and they start putting product on and then where do your tenants go? Now, I will say, I still think it's a very, very good time to build apartments in select markets, in uh, downtown core areas especially there's a huge move to moving back into cities people really like that it's a, it's a convergence of of uh, baby boomers that want walkability and young people who want the action and the excitement all coming together to these city centers. Well, and of course, in markets like that, you may not be able to buy a building at the right cap rate, but you can likely build one. Right, so we can build to a nine or 10 cap, maybe even an 11 cap in some situations. Why would we go buy at a six cap? And so, you know, that's how the world works here in the U.S. Anytime there's a need out there, somebody finds a way to fill it. And if you're just careful about what you're doing and you quantify everything and you, you know, nobody can see 10 years down the road, but anyone who's been in this business and studies history a little bit can see three to five years down the road. You guys point out in the show a lot how slow real estate moves. Right. That suits me just fine. Yeah. I, I like to know. I mean. It took me a solid year of 
all of 2006 and, and even into the first quarter of 2007 to get out of every development project I was in at the time. I knew it was coming. I didn't know it would be that bad, yeah. but I knew it was coming. The only thing I couldn't do was sell all my single family homes, which I'd accumulated back in the 90s. They were worth a lot of money in 2007 and I yep. still owned them all. I just sold them last week, finally, oh. um, because I had to wait. But the other thing I'd say is we, we always bought based on predictable income. So even during 2007, 8, and 9, where everything was crashing and people were getting killed, if you owned things that were backed by predictable income, you were fine. As you know, The asset values might drop, but as long as your loan didn't come due during that window and you'd extend it out past that, I found you were fine. Yeah, such a good point. And, and again, back to the fact that markets move in cycles. We talked about this uh, a little bit last week is the fact that the, the cycles in different product type are different, just like they are in different markets. And when you guys go in, you're going to be analyzing that. Where is this property in terms of the cycle? Where is it compared to the competitive set? What else is available? What are some of the things that you look for, some of those checklist items when you're looking at a market or a deal? Yeah, so first we start macro and that's kind of studying the whole real estate trend nationally and where we are in the real estate cycle itself. Where are the debt markets? And we try and get a picture of that and know where we are approximately in the real estate cycle. You don't have to be perfectly accurate. Again, if you're doing things that are backed by supply, true supply and demand matrix and, and income. Then we hone in on the area itself. And, and, and part of that, actually, I should say, speak to this is, you know, we've had a change in administration recently. So we do pay attention to policy and we pay attention to politics, but not to the level of paranoia or getting scared about one thing or another. We just try and keep an eye on it and see, is there something that comes down? Like if the corporate tax rate gets cut, as President Trump has indicated he wanted to try and do dur during his campaign, that changes us from going from an LLC structure potentially to going to a corporate structure. And so we keep an eye on that. Then we hone in, I mean, you're talking about specific deals. We hone in on the area, the city that it's in, and we look at the demographic, what's going on there, what's going on with jobs, what's the unemployment rate. Then we look at the specific neighborhood we're going into. So we focus all the way down to what block is it on? Is it on a corner? Is it in the middle of the block? Is it gonna be seen? Is it easy, easily parked? And, and so we, we really narrow down to that. Then if all of that checks out, we get into the project itself. What kind of asset type is it? What's the supply and demand for that specific asset? Are these numbers verifiable? Can we actually quantify what these numbers are saying? Because so, usually a developer brings us a deal and says, hey guys, will you take a look at this one? And we look at 10, 20 a week. And if you look at the numbers and you look at the area and you look at the demographic and it all checks out, then we go visit the site. We get there, we check everything. Background checks on the deal sponsor. Who's selling the land? What do the projections look like? We get down to what do the environmentals look like? Have they had an environmental survey done yet? All the way down to who's the architect designing the project, who's the builder they've lined up or not lined up. You know, it's a very extensive list and it takes... I would say anywhere, I would say it probably takes 100 hours of my team's time. You know, there's a number of us, four specifically key guys that all look through the deal and vet the deal. And I would say it probably takes about 100 hours to ascertain whether or not this is something that, you know, we can do. You know, a lot of times it's yes. I, I got to be honest. There are a lot of good projects out there. Sometimes it just takes a little tweaking. The deal sponsor may not have the structure just the way we would see an investor wanting to get into it. So sometimes we just consult, even a deal that we're not 
interested in funding ourselves, we'll give them a plan and say, hey, if you want to you know, syndicate this and put this together yourself, here's a structure we would present out there. It doesn't work for us because maybe it doesn't take enough capital you know, to go into that market. Um, if we're in a market where it's a one-off deal and we're not going to do any more in that market, we try and stay away from that. We look to get involved with people who are going to bring us a stream of deals. Um, so we'd look at markets like Denver we're big in right now because we have a stream of deals coming from there. And we have developers that we're on our third and fourth deal with now there. You know, it, it's just a lot easier for us. If it's not going to take at least three to five million of equity, you know, it, it just unfortunately isn't worth doing all the travel time and the vetting. Well, I would also think that a lot of this hundred hours of work can also inure to the benefit of the market. So every time you get a new deal in a market you're already in, well, it's checks and balances and let's make sure we're revisiting our assumptions and seeing how the market really held up compared to what we did in those things. Exactly. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I always used to say, do the work once and get paid forever. And that was um, when we were primarily trying to buy, you know, it's starting in the commission, as we touched on in the beginning, you're always working yourself out of a job. Right. You know, every time I sold something I had to go find somebody else to work for Wake so up unemployed yep. exactly so so I wanted to get the rich dad poor dad Robert Kiyosaki plan funded first which was all acquisitions so that you'd have that passive income and and be able to you know then focus on just what you're passionate about and you love doing and so doing the work once getting paid forever kind of translates to that as well once we do the work on a market we know it we've been there we've touched it we feel it and on a deal sponsor you know the the first time we work with somebody it's pretty intense the second time it's a phone call you know because we've already we know them you know well, this we, is the the great point about the one-off deal of any kind if i'm just an investor buying a single family house if i decide that i want to diversify across three markets which might be a good decision but i'm going to fly into each one i'm going to spend time i'm going to learn the market meet a team find a property get a property manager get the inspections done all that and then start over with house number two you're really tempted to go, well, wait a minute, I've already built up a good team, all those kinds of things. Because what you guys do isn't do the actual development. You fund a developer. You are building up a list of folks who you're learning about and how are they performing and what kind of returns can they produce. But you've also got a lot of knowledge to share with those folks. One of the things you said early on is maybe a developer that doesn't have a track record. What's the value add besides bringing capital to a deal that you guys have with some of these folks? Well, I'd like to think they come away with a lot better knowledge and understanding of how an investor would think through a deal. You know, I can kind of see it on both sides. I've always been able to see both sides of every argument. I'm down the middle of everything. It's a weird way to be, actually. People, I mean, I'm not highly opinionated on politics, rights and wrongs. I mean, the Ten Commandments aside. Um, <laughs> but I would say if if they don't come away with a lot better understanding of how a developer would think of a deal or an investor rather would think of their deal if they wanted to go out and find investors themselves, which is fine. We don't we provide a proposal to them and say this is how we would get involved. If you can find the money cheaper or you can find you want to do it yourself great, you know, no problem. We hope that they come away understanding just a little bit more about how someone would look at a PPM, a track record, you know, what's laid out there for them. From a simple, you know, our perspective to our investors is usually no longer than three pages on any one deal. It's a very simple, it's a PDF document. We don't do fancy, glossy brochures. Anytime I get one of those, I always think, man, this guy just spent so much money on a 120-page brochure. 
Why, why would they do that? I don't need to know all this stuff. You know, we often joke with uh, Ken McElroy and Robert Kiyosaki that the, the prettier the brochure, the worse the deal. Yeah, I, <laughs> I, I agree with you 100%. Well, and, and it's really understanding what the metrics are. And as we were talking a little bit before uh, we got together for the interview, our, our real estate business is really pretty boring. I mean, at the end of the day, real estate can be as exciting as watching paint dry. At the same time, if you can master the fundamentals and you can figure out how to, what we call, hit the repeatable base hits instead of swing for the fences in the grand slam, then it does become predictable cash flow. Yeah, I, I've done a video for this and sent it to our investors once on boring. And it was kind of funny because we just made this video and it was all this monotone, boring, boring. <laughs> and I was like, look, you know, the sexier a real estate deal is, the least likely it is to win. I mean, it's just, that's just the way it is. You know, the fact is we're funding deals right now that I don't like because they're they're sexy. A hotel in right. downtown Denver. I'm like, right. that's exciting. And that's I'm too like, sexy of a deal. Yeah. But, the, you know, the numbers are so staggering on it. We just, you know, we were like, well, you know, we can't really, I, I don't, didn't really want to be in hospitality, but we, you know, it was, it was, it was interesting because we hired HVS to do an independent third party report on it. HVS Hotel Valuation Systems, one of the largest companies in management and appraisal and valuation of hotel deals. Yeah. And they're, they're, you know, hands down, they're the, the, they're it in the industry, I think. And uh, in terms of knowing what your hotel is going to do when it's out of the ground, yep. provided you can get it that far. And, um, Anyway, they you know the, they confirmed all the numbers. I, I have friends that have built hotels. I called them. I sent them the deal packet. You know they confirmed the numbers. I so at the end of the day, we're doing a deal that's a little sexier than I would like. But um, you know, it, it's still at the end of the day, it should be boring. I'm right. hoping it's boring because <laughs> boring well, makes money <laughs> and it checks the boxes. I know there's a big long list in your mind. I know our listeners would love to have a copy of that list and the. Good news is John's put together his due diligence checklist before he's done. We'll tell you how to get a copy of that. Speaking of Robert Kiyosaki, when we come back, you're going to get a chance to win his latest book, Second Chance, when we play Real Estate Trivia. You're tuned to the Real Estate Guys radio program. I'm your host, Robert Helms. Real estate investment advice right in your mailbox. Sign up for the free Real Estate Guys newsletter at realestateguysradio.com. Forbes rated Memphis the best cash flow market in the nation. And our good friend Terry Kerr at Mid-South Homebuyers has been the premier turnkey rental property provider in Memphis for over 13 years. With an A-plus rating for the Better Business Bureau, Terry has renovated over 750 houses. Real Estate Guys listeners have snapped up hundreds. Discover what these satisfied investors already know. Mid-South's properties are completely renovated with a one-year warranty and a lifelong rental guarantee. They're affordable, well-managed, and easy to own. Perfect for beginning investors and veterans alike. Get in on the action. Contact Terry and his team via email at midsouth at realestateguysradio.com. Hi, this is Lawrence Yuan, Chief Economist with National Association of Realtors, and you are listening to The Real Estate Guys. Welcome back to The Real Estate Guys radio program. Thanks for tuning into the show. So glad you're here. Be sure and tell a friend about The Real Estate Guys. We're talking about finding and funding deals that make sense. How do you vet a market? How do you vet a deal? How do you vet a team? Before we get back to that, it's time to play Real Estate Trivia, your chance to win a prize by knowing today's Real Estate Trivia question. In just a minute, I'm going to ask you a question that has something to do with real estate, kind of, and you're going to come up with the answer when you do, send us an email to trivia at realestateguysradio.com. Include your name, the answer to the question, and your mailing address, because if you're the winner, we're going to send you this thick old book from Robert Kiyosaki called Second Chance, the physical book sent to you. 
if you know today's real estate trivia question. Last week on The Real Estate Guys, we were talking about overcoming adversity and knowing when and where in the cycle you are. We asked this, which country in the world produces the most mustard? Well, believe it or not, it's the country of Canada. Now, Canada's number two when it comes to production of mustard seed right after Nepal. But in terms of finished mustard product, Canada is where mustard comes from. Here's our real estate trivia question for this week. If you're going to have mustard and something to put it on, I guess you've got to have a sugary beverage. I want to know where Coca-Cola was first bottled. Today, like our podcast, Coca-Cola is bottled all around the world. We're in more than 190 countries now with the Real Estate Guys, but it was originally bottled where? If you know or want to take a guess, send your best guess to trivia at realestateguysradio.com. Include your name, the answer to the question, and your mailing address. If you're the winner, we're going to send you out Second Chance by Robert Kiyosaki. That's today's real estate trivia question. Any real estate deal you get into, it's important that you do the homework, what we call the due diligence. So what we're talking about today is how do you find a deal that makes sense and really from two sides of the equation. Our guest today helps investors find great deals, but also helps put together funding for developers and people that need money. So John, before the uh, break, we were talking about some of the different deals and some of the checklist items, and there'll be more of those before we're done. Not sure we'll get to them all, but again, John's put together a great great checklist of this stuff we're going to make available to you. Let's talk about how you guys approach deals today because it's a little different than most folks. Most folks who syndicate, who put together money, are looking at a very deal-specific model. I found a great apartment building. I found a great hotel. I'm going to put together a capital stack, raise some money, get a loan, and then I'm going to be, like we talked about before, unemployed and go do that again. But the model you guys use at Promontus is very different than that. You have a model that is kind of unique. Can you speak to that? Yeah, so in 2009, we started buying deals one-off like everyone else. I thought about it the same way. We found a property we wanted to buy. We put a package together, and I had about, I think it was 9 or 11 investors participate in that deal. A couple months later, we had a second deal that came along that, you know, it was just the right time to buy, finally. You know, we've been waiting for a year and a half. And so we found the second deal, and we put that together, and we had the same 11 or so investors, plus the three additional, I believe. We had around 14, because uh, some other people had heard about it. And then we got to the third deal, and I was putting that together, and I noticed that a couple people that were in the first two deals were not coming in on the third deal. One of them was my Aunt Barb, and uh, I called my Aunt Barb, and I said, Barb, why aren't you going into the third deal? And she said, well, you have all my money. And I said, what? What? What are you talking about? And she said, you have all my retirement money. That's all my IRA. I put it in the first and the second deal. And I just, I started to panic. I was like, first of all, I don't want that much of anyone's right. money. That's you know? a good lesson right there. And and second of all, I was like, wow, what if, what if one of the first two deals doesn't work out? You know, I mean, we don't set up deals thinking they're not going to work out. As right. a matter of fact, we primarily only concern ourselves with the downside and how we're going to get out of them. But even taking that approach it's possible that one of these things doesn't work out. And if it's one of the two deals that Aunt Barb is in and I lose half her retirement account, the other deal probably isn't going to make up for it because we're not buying things that double your money overnight. You right. know, this is real estate. If you're if you're really good, a 15 to 18% annual return. So that's when I, I uh, middle of the night, woke up and it hit me. You know, we need to pool these deals under the roof of a, of a parent company. 
So what I did was I called every investor we had, I got them all to agree, and we created essentially what's now called PF3 LLC, where we have 300 investors participating in PF3 LLC, and we've made 30 or so acquisitions, I believe it's 35 actually, that are all individual deals held in their own sub-entity, which is 100% owned by PF3. Now this does a tremendous amount for us. One, we're not reporting every month on 30 individual deals to 30 different ownership groups. Secondly, we have pooled reserves across all the assets. So we have over 10 million cash in the bank in PF3 right now. Any one deal, any three deals could crater completely. And we don't even come close to hitting our reserve build. You know, I mean, we every month we have global cash flows that we, we distribute over $350,000 a month out of PF3 alone. And that's, that's only about 60 to 65% of the actual free cash flow. So building that fund structure diversifies the risk. We've had only one or two deals in PF3 that have slightly underperformed. But if those deals, I like to say real estate experiences temporary setbacks. And if you're in a fund structure like this, a temporary setback can be fixed because you have these pooled reserves. But if that deal sits by itself and it's suffering and your investors don't want to meet a capital call, which I've never made, thank goodness, because of this structure. But if I if I didn't have this structure, I would have had to make a capital call on right. one of those. If that's not met, I lose that asset and it's gone, gone forever. But if it's just a temporary setback and we deem it, hey, a tenant left or went under or went bankrupt, and now we can we have the time to re-tenant that property, we can take the value of that from a two million forced liquidation sale back up to a five million dollar valuation just by being patient. That fixes a lot of problems. So we do the same thing with these development deals. We create a parent company. Investors participate in that parent company. This uh, The current one's called PF4. And then we diversify those funds across multiple development deals that we're funding and helping sponsors get you know, built out and, and, and completed. All right, awesome. Well, there's two angles of this I want to explore because obviously uh, part of our listener audience uh, are very interested in syndicating deals. And so the structure is fascinating, but also from the investor side. And let's start there. Someone's looking to put money into a deal. In this case, the diversity is a safety mechanism. You, if, if, I, if I'm understanding this correctly, if I were to put money into your fund, your top fund, it's actually already diversified into several different properties, several different markets. Correct. And one of the challenges with development is the short fuse on when these deals come to liquid liquidity. So you would think it's an advantage to come in later because there's already three deals in progress, but those deals aren't actually far enough along to know the outcome of them. So what we do with the development funds is they run, they're rolling and they run for about 12 to 18 months. And then we close them. All that capital has been placed into multiple developments and, and therefore, you know, it's diversified across a number of deals in hopefully various markets or asset types. And then what happens is as that money comes back in, we pay that out to the investors pro rata and all the deals have to win before we get paid or anything else happens. You know, 100% of investor capital plus a preferred return has to come back first. So if any one deal craters, let's say we did a deal and we put six million into that deal and we lost the six million. Well, the other three we did would have to do so well that we pay that back to the investors first 
plus a preferred return to them, then my company gets involved in participating in the equity side of the equation. And what this does, if you really understand it mathematically, is it takes the risk of this whole development thing out of the equation. I mean, if I go three for four or four for five on these development deals, which is, I believe, highly likely considering how much due diligence we do, you're going to come out with a very nice return. If I hit them all right, it's going to be off the charts because we're not targeting deals that are going to give us a 15% annual rate of return. We're looking for higher. And then what we can do is by blending them, we can afford to, you know, some people think higher rate of return translates to more risky. I like to say lower rate of knowledge and experience translates to more risky. Yes. And, and risk is definitely proportionate to knowledge. So, you know, for us, we don't have to do anything. We don't sit on a blind pool. We put the deals out as we get them. We don't have a gun to our head to place capital. There's a lot of things about the structure that I could speak to that, you know, I, I had to learn the hard way because what would happen is um, I'd take these deals out to investors and they would give me the feedback, you know, I'm, and, and people will sometimes just, put, you know, they don't want to tell you why. An investor doesn't want to tell you why they're not investing. They don't want to make you feel bad. Right. You know, it's hard enough for them to say no, believe it or not. If you really ask somebody to participate in your deal, you know, it's hard for them to say no. They want to help you if they know you and like you. Sure. But they may not like something about your deal. So you have to ask them. You have to say, hey, don't make me feel bad. I'm really interested in knowing what specifically about this structure or this deal that you, you know, you don't like so that you can get that feedback and then understand how to change the structure or make it a way that works better. Well, that's critical, absolutely. The only way we get better is through feedback, and this is a fascinating way to think about it. Now, I would also think that you'd have to be at some level of deal flow for a structure like this to make sense. You guys have been out there doing this a while, obviously, the number of funds you have and so forth. If it's a closed-in fund, does it get to a point where it just eventually liquidates, or could the fund then just invest in something else that you've already got the money for? So what happens is as those individual development deals liquidate, that cash goes back out to the investors and they can participate in our next thing that we have going on at that time okay. if they like, or they can take the money and they can go do something else. Our main fund, PF3, is sort of a buy and hold and, and last a long time type vehicle. It's meant for passive income and cash flow. Uh, that's exceedingly hard to do in this market right now. And the opportunity for doing that is not as good as the opportunity for what I would call more the uh, capital wealth growth type thing like this, where you're not getting a monthly check, but your money's becoming worth more and more overnight. Now, from the investor side, what are the minimums? What kind of timelines do you propose to folks? Obviously, it changes based on the, the liquidation of these various assets, but uh, what does the overall concept look like? Yeah, so... Um, I used to try and be all things to all people and create something that fit everybody, but that just doesn't really work anymore. And at some point in time, you've got to establish some minimums. So, you know, we we have a $100,000 share price on our current fund, PF4. Um, for new investors, we've cut that in half sometimes just because they don't know us and, and you know, they want to kind of get their feet wet and see how it goes. Um, we have investors that have bought 20 plus of those shares. We have investors that have done a half. And, you know, it doesn't really matter because of the platforms today and how we can report 
you know, we, we keep everything real time. We send a monthly update on everything that's going on. It can all be done by email. It's, you know, it's one distribution list. So whether we're sending that to 300 people or 3,000 people, you know, it really doesn't matter uh, as long as we're pushing out and reporting enough information. The other thing I'd say about syndicating that I've found to be one of the key elements is to make sure that you operate with 100% transparency. Since day one, I mean, we accurately, we promote that in every email we do. Um, I've had investors call me from California and say, hey, I heard about you through this or I heard about you through that. But, you know, my wife will kill me if I send you 200 grand and this turns out to be some kind of, you know, crazy scheme or whatever. Yeah. And so we put together a list of, you know, a, a link to the, my Facebook page, my LinkedIn page, um, a reference sheet with um, bank statements from 11 or 12 different banking relationships we have with contact information to those loan officers and private banking lending relationships. I'll provide people with my financial statement and balance sheet if they need to see it, you know, and, and uh, I don't email it, but uh, yeah. we have people come into the office um, and look at closing documents, inspection reports, uh, architecture plans, you know, it, it's crazy. Now that doesn't happen that often, but I, I actually enjoy the people that spend a lot of time up front. Um, the investors that, that come into our organization and spend a lot of time looking at our organization and vetting us as, as people, those are the ones we never hear from again. They're happy. They did their work and they're thrilled and that's that. Um, the, the ones that just throw money in, those always worry me a little bit. You know, you just get this guy calling from Alaska and he says, hey, here's 300 grand. And you're always worried that's going to be the guy who's, you know, calling you every five minutes. The most expensive check I ever took, we say sometimes. You're, that's right. <laughs> so let's talk about the developer side because this is unique because you guys are actively in your new fund looking for projects and you've got $100,000 share price and minimum a, a half a share. What about the developer side? What's kind of your appetite for deal size? Are you looking for stuff that hasn't broke ground yet? Or what stage do you do rehab projects? What are you looking for? So we've done all kinds of things. Before we started the fund structure under development, we did what were called one-off deals. And we always want to kind of test the market, make sure it's there before we start you know, putting something together where we think we're going to be able to get. Now the deal flow is happening fast enough now that we can do this. But we bought one building. It was 260,000 square feet. We paid about $12 a square foot for it. It was 60% occupied. I think we paid 3.6 for it. We gave the investors an 18% return and had their money out in six months plus their return. Um, we own that building now uh, with the guy who brought it to us. That was partly his deal was he didn't want to have a whole bunch of investors. And so we put a deal together where we could get in and get out. Now, we own the building with them and, and, and manage and run it and operate it. And I think we have an offer on it for around 10 or 11 million. You know, that's been a, a phenomenal deal. So we'll repurpose stuff if we can find it. Now that's harder to do. We're doing ground up development of a hotel in Denver. We have a successful townhome project there. We have two condo projects there. Um, so we'll look at anything. Again, we're, we're situationally driven. If we find the right situation, we'll, we'll do it. Um, now, from size parameters, I think I mentioned three to five million of equity minimum, you know, kind of the, the larger, the better. Although a deal that gets up over about 15 million is going to tip the scales on our fund structure too much. So we may JV that out or something. 
Um, we always have controlling interest of every deal, but we like the person, the deal sponsor who brought it to us, the developer, the boots on the ground to have a substantial portion of ownership and to have appropriate fees so they're not poor while the whole thing's going on because sometimes it takes two years, three years before you get a paycheck. So, you know, we try and put, we don't participate in fees. We certainly understand that because I did that before and I know I needed fees to get from one deal to the next. Well, absolutely. You want them to have the incentive to get it over the line. Well, and I'm sure when it comes to vetting deals, especially ground up, there's a bunch of, uh, of things that you'd have on your due diligence checklist as well. But in the interest of time, uh, what we're going to do is if you're interested in receiving John's uh, checklist, which is quite thorough on all kinds of things to consider due diligence on a uh, on a property. All you're going to do is uh, to vet a deal, you're going to send an email to vet at realestateguysradio.com. That's vet, V-E-T, at realestateguysradio.com, and you'll get a chance to see that. This has been such great stuff. Really appreciate you coming in, John, and uh, sharing this with us, and uh, we'll look forward to hearing more from you. Robert, I appreciate you and Russ doing this show and having me on this show. This is how business should be done. You guys share more than anybody I've ever met, and I greatly appreciate it. Thank you, sir. All right, more when we come back, we're talking about finding and funding deals that make sense today on the Real Estate Guys radio program. I'm your host, Robert Helms. Need help with your real estate investment portfolio? Check out the resources page at realestateguysradio.com. Hi, this is Patrick Donahoe, CEO of Paradigm Life. Wall Street and banks spend billions of dollars per year in advertising with the goal to convince you that they are the solution. But take a look around. None of their advice has worked. If you're listening to this, odds are pretty good that you're already a real estate investor or at least becoming one. So why do you do it? Is it to hedge inflation, the tax benefits, or maybe it's to get your money away from Wall Street? It's because of these benefits and so many more that I created the Real Estate Investor's Guide to the Perpetual Wealth Strategy. When you combine successful real estate investing with the Perpetual Wealth Strategy, you have the recipe for what has helped the wealthy to establish their financial well-being for decades. You can download the Real Estate Investor's Guide to the Perpetual Wealth Strategy today by clicking the Resources tab on the Real Estate Guys Radio homepage. Don't wait, go download it now. Dreaming of fast profits, flipping houses, or enjoying massive streams of passive income, but not sure where to start? Discover Red Hot Dallas, Texas, and one of the premier turnkey property providers in the nation. Attend American Real Estate Investments Property Tour and Workshop April 21st through the 23rd. See firsthand what makes the Dallas market so strong. Meet a great team of dedicated acquisition specialists, property managers, and financing sources. Tour a variety of properties in various stages of renovation, including some available right now. But there's only one bus, so space is limited. For all the details, send an email to dfwtour at investmentpropertyshowcase.com. That's dfwtour at investmentpropertyshowcase.com. Hi, this is Mark Skousen, and you're listening to The Real Estate Guys. Welcome back to The Real Estate Guys radio program. We're talking today about finding and funding deals that make sense. We're going to be talking about that a lot at The Secrets of Successful Syndication coming up March 3rd and 4th in Dallas, Texas. Our whole emphasis of that event is twofold, kind of like the things we were talking about with John today. Number one, how do you get to do bigger deals with other people's money and be a promoter or syndicator and all the legal requirements and how you find deals and how you find 
find money. And number two, if you're thinking about passively investing in someone's deal, make sure you know what to do. Very excited to announce that uh, John's going to be a featured uh, speaker at uh, at the event. So really great to hear from him. Yeah, it is. It's great. You know, we're always out there looking for talent. We're looking for people that are out there doing the thing in the real world and can bring that real world experience and wisdom. I took pages of notes. I learned a ton. The deal structure thing I thought was fascinating. One thing in particular that I really appreciated because, you know, we try to bring this aspect to the show quite a bit is uh, what I call the macro to Main Street. It's this idea that your investments, your individual properties, your deals, if you will, are floating in an economic sea. And when you're situationally driven like they are, which is, you know, you're looking for a set of circumstances that are favorable towards quantifiable, maybe not completely controllable, but largely influenceable factors where you can produce a more predictable result because you can get your arms around it, then you got to go where those circumstances exist. And sometimes that means you have to see the big macro trends. And, you know, one of my pet peeves and one of the things that, you know, I work personally to bring to the show is uh, to really stimulate people out there to think that way, how important it is to think that way. Because if you get pigeonholed, if you get so tunnel vision into one area, one market, one product type, it's great to get rich in a niche. And I totally believe in that. But when you're out there trying to be a strategic real estate investor, a strategic syndicator, a business person, you have to have the ability to go where the opportunities are. And then you hire the people who are the experts in that particular niche. You don't have to be the expert. And that goes back to this bigger thing, Robert, you were talking about in terms of the whole syndication training. We see so many people spend a lot of money on education because they want to learn how to be a lawyer. They want to learn how to be a mortgage broker. They want to learn how to be an appraiser and a property manager. And I understand completely the desire to master every single facet of being a successful investor, especially when you're managing other people's money. But what I've learned when I get around people like John that are performing at a high level, they're managing large amounts of money, they don't know everything there is. Right. What they learn how to do is vet, in, in what he was talking about, vet the team members, vet the deal, and then get a team of people. He talked about 100 man hours going in to look at a deal. That's 100 man hours. That's not 100 hours of one man. That's right. a team of people with different expertise. I'm guessing if we broke that team down, each one of those guys has something different. When McElroy goes in to a deal, he's got a team of people. He's got somebody on the front end doing the acquisitions. He's got somebody out there inspecting the property and walking the property, looking at the physical condition. He's got people working on the financials and, and, and all of that. And it's important that you have people who are experts in what they do and that what you are expert in is learning how to put all those pieces together and see the big picture. So again, if you're interested in John's checklist, all kinds of things to consider in any kind of real estate deal when it comes to due diligence, you want to vet a market, vet a deal, vet a team, send your email request to vet at realestateguysradio.com and then come on out the secrets of successful syndication, be able to meet John, pick his brain. He's got a lot of uh, core competencies and skill sets we didn't have time to talk about today, one of which he's going to share with us at the event. You can get all the details for the secrets of successful syndication on our website at realestateguysradio.com under events. Great stuff. It's always good to be diligent, and you will be very happy for the amount of time you spend up front making sure it's the right deal. It's that little bit of effort up front, right, that ounce of prevention that makes a ton in the long run. So big thanks to uh, John for sharing his time today and his checklist. Next week on The Real Estate Guys, we're going to be talking about a local market that is doing extremely well and how you can get in on the action. Until then, go out and make some equity happen. Hi, Robert Kiyosaki, probably best known for the book Rich Dad, Poor Dad. 
you guys have a chance, go on the Real Estate Guys Cruise. I'll be on the next one, 2017. Look, the most important thing, more important than money are the people you hang out with. So if you want to start hanging out with better, newer, smarter people, that's what the Real Estate Guys Cruise is about. You spend all this time, great food, great ports, great fun, stimulating ideas. And when you leave that ship, the cruise, totally different person. So I look forward to seeing you on the Real Estate Guys Cruise. But on the 20th anniversary of Rich Dad, I'd rather be with these guys than anyplace else. This episode of the Real Estate Guys Radio Show is brought to you by Paradigm Life. Powerful cash management strategies using life insurance. Learn more at beyourbank.com. Mid-South Home Buyers, low-cost, turnkey cash flow properties in Memphis, Tennessee. Corporate Direct, asset protection strategies for real estate investors from attorney and rich dad advisor Garrett Sutton. Find these and other great companies under the resources tab at realestateguysradio.com. To learn how you can expose your product or service to the Real Estate Guys audience, call 888-489-7723, extension 4. That's 888-489-7723, extension 4. Or use the feedback page at realestateguysradio.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week right here on the Real Estate Guys Radio Show.